Well, I want to again begin by welcoming you to our 43rd anniversary celebration here at Maranatha. You know, each year when we gather together for this particular Sunday, it makes us so happy to see many familiar faces from sometimes former members or or close family, old friends, and maybe even for some of us new acquaintances. And as our call to worship from Psalm 133 reminds us this morning, how delightfully good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together, live together in harmony. And so as we continue on in our worship, which will again lead us to a time of fellowship where we'll eat plenty of food and we'll catch up with one another. We'll talk about kids and grandkids, I'm sure. We'll share about things that are going on at work, maybe things that are going on in our hobbies and leisure life too. We may even recount some of our difficulties that we've experienced over the past year. Or perhaps even remember some people that we've lost. Whether we're laughing, or maybe whether we're tearing up. In the middle of all of that, I want us to remember that we are experiencing that blessing of togetherness, harmony, of unity, and fellowship with one another. Because as our passage reminds us today, the Lord God, through Jesus Christ our Savior, has entered and to partnership in the Gospel with us. The reason why we come here every Sunday is because God stooped low in Christ Jesus to enter into the work and partnership of the Gospel even with us. And so we've come together for this reason, truly. And to celebrate this fact. So let it never be far from our hearts or our minds that we have been a church now, a local congregation for 43 years, not because of our ingenuity or our courage or our productivity or anything else other than this, that God and His compassion and providence has chosen to partner with us. With us! to work out and bear witness to the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Gospel in and through us. That's what brings us together, not only today, but every Sunday. And so to that end, we're beginning our time in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now we're going to go through this letter, good Lord willing, on into early fall. And you know, when we begin new books of the Bible to study on Sunday mornings, I'm always prayerful that whatever passage the Lord leads us to, that it would be something that would meet us in our everyday lives. In other words, it would be something that seems to be so true, so relevant, so pressing to the moment in which we're living, into the experiences which we're experiencing, that we'd really hear God's voice in an indescribable way through the preaching and the reading of His Word as clear as day. We would experience and know the Bible as it's meant to be experienced and known as a living, breathing revelation of God Himself to ordinary people like us. And still, although that's my prayer, and that's my hope, and that's my belief that that will happen, whether or not it's a good sermon or not, 
I've always been surprised how God speaks through the poor words of me or whatever preacher tries to stumble their way through this Bible. I'm still so often surprised by how precisely our passage, or more specifically, how the Lord speaks to us through these passages of Scripture. And I think this particular document, the letter to the Philippians, is a powerful document. Although written thousands of years ago to a people that lived on the other side of the planet, it speaks to our day and our age with the utmost clarity. The letter to the Philippian congregation is a letter that Paul writes while he's under house arrest, presumably in Rome. Some years earlier, as we read in in Acts 16, Paul, intending to continue on his missionary work of the Gospel to press deeper into Asia, or Asia Minor, which is known to us as Turkey today, to preach the good news of Jesus, we read in Acts 16, this is strange, he was prevented by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Jesus, Luke tells us. He was prevented by doing that because the Lord had something else in mind for Paul and for Silas. And so one night, Paul had a vision, we read, of a Macedonian man. Now just to catch us up on our geography and sociology, Macedonia was an Eastern European area situated just north of Greece and right in between what we call modern-day Albania and Serbia. And he had a vision of this man, a man he had not known, a man who goes unidentified, begging Paul and his partners to cross over into Eastern Europe, into their land, and to share this good news that they needed so desperately. So Paul and Silas, listening to the Spirit of Christ, go into Philippi in this region. And it's perhaps, I think, maybe the most Roman city outside of Italy itself. Paul was walking in the streets about a hundred years after Mark Anthony and Octavian got revenge on Brutus and Cassius who had conspired together with some other men to have Julius Caesar assassinated. And so they stormed into this city with their troops and put these men and their soldiers to death. And so the the soldiers that who had avenged Julius Caesar decided to settle there, to, to, to take occupation of this foreign city, and, and it became a great Roman stronghold. I think to us, maybe comparably, it'd be like us walking into the neighborhoods of Langley, Virginia, and seeing the CIA directors and FBI directors who are now retired, or, or, or U.S. generals and admirals, where they live and work. That's the environment that the city of Philippi is to the Roman Empire. And immediately, Paul, lowly Paul, who although he's a Roman citizen, is a, is a Pharisee, but most importantly at this point, he's an itinerant, that is a traveling tent maker. Here comes this blue-collar worker into one of the most prominent cities in Eastern Europe. And he turns their world upside down with his proclamation. What does Paul come to tell them? What does Paul say to this people? Well, he doesn't glorify anybody they're used to being glorified. He doesn't 
lift up some patriotic hero of the Roman Empire, but instead he does something scandalous. He preaches King Jesus, who was crucified by the Roman Empire. He doesn't preach a, a, a general or an emperor that has conquered his enemies and putting them to the sword. He preaches one who was put to the sword, so to speak, by these people. But not just Christ crucified. He preaches Christ resurrected. He preaches Christ ascended to His throne in heaven for them. And as you might imagine, this does not go over well with the local Roman government. Neither their religion, their their local cults to uh, these great military heroes or or the gods of Rome, or their their state who prided itself on its prominence, neither the church nor state of Rome at the time was impressed with what Paul was saying. But despite sharp resistance, the power of the Gospel, the humility of Jesus Christ, still took root in the hearts of people that had only known pride and arrogance before. And we see this with a prosperous merchant named Lydia, a seller of purple. Purple is not a naturally occurring color very often in the world. And so, it would take massive amounts of money and resources to be a a purple merchant. And yet, that's exactly what Lydia is. And she hears Paul and Silas proclaiming this good news of Jesus for even Lydia, for her. And she comes to faith. And she starts a house church in her own home. But shortly thereafter, Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace for disturbing the peace. Now, we learn that the inciting event for them disturbing the peace was a, was a slave girl that was demonically oppressed and economically exploited for her supernatural powers and predilection to fortune tell and all that, Paul sends that spirit away from her. And her owners realize she's no longer profitable. And that's why they drag them into the marketplace. To have them shamed. To have them beaten for being so bold as to deliver someone from demonic oppression and economic exploitation. That's what this culture is all about. And that's why they oppose Paul and Silas. They're beaten within an inch of their life and then thrown into a nasty, grimy, cold, rat-infested prison with black eyes swollen shut, with bloody noses and broken teeth And yet we see Paul and Silas sing hymns so loud, so sincerely, so joyously that it shakes the prison apart. And it leads to the conversion and baptism of their own warden, their own jailer. He is so impressed by their love and humility and joy in Jesus that he can't help but give his life over to him. And thus begins the church at Philippi. Paul so radicalized this community, not only with his willingness 
but His joyful willingness to suffer for the sake of Jesus and His coming kingdom, that after turning away from their gods of war and money, these believers in this city became one of the most faithful churches that Paul ever planted. Instead of taking pride in their great empire and their military prowess or their cultural wealth, they became a peaceful people that no longer strove against anyone else. They became a generous people that gave away so much of their wealth and abundance and resources to help people that didn't have a penny to their name. They funded, we read, Paul's missionary efforts, supported other struggling churches in this region, some of them whom Paul lets us know were too stingy to help. And, and perhaps... Uh, most of all, they, they send massive amounts of money and aid to relieve the churches of Jerusalem that are suffering during drought and famine. They were so generous, so generous, that Paul continues to use them as an example of what he calls the grace of giving in 2 Corinthians. And so it's against this backdrop that Paul sends this letter to this community some years later. Once they were a proud people, but now they are called to humility. Once they were a fierce people, but now they're called to peace. Once they were a greedy people, but now they're called to generosity. And once they were self-serious, but now they're called to joy. And I cannot help but see in Philippi's old culture how this maps so neatly, I think, onto our modern American one. These people were exceptionalist, believing that life was about them and for them only. They believed that they were the pinnacle of, uh, of human achievement and culture and success. And so because they were so important in the history of the world, they could treat people with cruelty and mockery to get their own way. Their slogan would have been, Philippi first. That's who they were. So often in our culture, that's who I see who we are. And yet, as these people encountered the good news of Jesus Christ, it totally reoriented their way of life. Suddenly, they were a people who sought to treat others more highly than themselves. Suddenly, upon meeting Jesus, they were a people who sought to outdo one another only in honor. Suddenly, upon knowing who Christ was uh, crucified and risen for them, they were a people to, that sought to have one united mind among themselves, that of a servant. The mind of Christ Jesus. Their Lord for them. And so, they sent one of their own leaders, Epaphroditus, to Paul with a care package while he was in Prison change. They were worried about his well-being. Here they are, getting harassed, getting bullied, getting beaten, 
getting humiliated, and yet they're more concerned about Paul miles away than they are, they are about their own suffering. Even though they were suffering under the heel of former friends and allies for abandoning their old way of life and their old schemes for money and power and instead becoming a people of Jesus who like Him give freely to all in need. This was their new way of life. And yet, as they suffered, they were still more concerned with how Paul and other Christians were doing. And so Paul, who himself is suffering prison chains, sends back this thank you letter to them for their generosity, for their stewardship, for their encouragements. And this letter is his exhortation of them to continue on in the good work Jesus has begun in them. To continue on being a people of joy and suffering. To continue on being a people of generosity and recession and depression. To continue on being a people who humbly serve even their own enemies. The people that hate them the most that want them dead. To continue on in the partnership of the Gospel that God has begun with them. That's what this letter is about. And so we begin reading our letter, specifically verses 1 and 2. Hoping, at least this is my hope for myself, and this is my hope for us as a congregation, that what the Philippians were, we might also be full of joy in Jesus and peace with one another. What a beautiful thing that would be for us. Verse 1 opens with a return label. It's like reading the upper right-hand corner of the envelope. You know, that's where people say uh, the return address and put their name and where to send it back to. That's what we're reading here. It's sent from Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul speaks in the first person throughout this letter, but no doubt he refers to Timothy who's been his partner, his co-worker, his secretary, his friend, his scribe, and his fellow theologian. You know, these letters that are written... Paul didn't probably just sit down in an easy chair and, and dictate, well, here's, the, uh, here's, here's what I think, and then just go on. He probably worked through these ideas and bounced them back and forth with his co-workers and they uh, inscribed it all together. Now this area, this part of the letter, is usually where in antiquity, and in the, in the process of letter writing, a writer might brag about his accomplishments or his honorary titles. But Paul takes quite a different path. He doesn't talk about how good he is. He calls himself a servant. Now, our English translations blunt the force of that a little bit because really the word in Greek is closer to slave. Paul, the apostle of the risen Lord Jesus Christ Himself, is a slave for Jesus and for the Philippian church. A title he takes on not resentfully, but joyfully. Why? Because he wants to emphasize his submission instead of his position. We love talking about our resumes, our CV, our curriculum verite. What's important? We all love to have be featured you know, when someone says, oh, well, this is so-and-so, and they've done this, and these are the things. 
That makes us, you know, spread our feathers like a peacock. That's human nature. But Paul emphasizes not that, but how lowly he is. How fortunate he is to be in the service of King Jesus. How fortunate he is to be a servant of this congregation. And so he wants to make clear that in the kingdom of God, under Jesus' rule, the only true and honest self-reflection one can have is that of a humble servant. One who is seen, known, forgiven, and saved by a compassionate Lord and King. He takes Jesus seriously who says, the first shall be last, but the last shall be first. Paul, who has taught them everything they know, they wouldn't exist as a church without Paul. And yet he writes to them willingly, joyfully, calling himself their slave in Jesus. Powerful. Christian, if you want to know what the vision for Christian life and Christian leadership looks like, it's this what John the Baptist says, I must decrease that He may increase. It's serving before being served. It's giving because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now that's a hard pill to swallow in our society. Because we have the exact opposite way of life here in this nation. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced of this, folks, that we don't really believe the gospel until it causes us to be humble and joyful for others as Jesus is for us. I'm convinced we can say we know Jesus all day long, that we're Christians all day long, but until it moves us towards this, giving up ourselves freely for the sake of another, I'm convinced we don't truly know the Jesus we claim we do. That's not easy. It's not easy to do. That's why we need each other. To help keep each other on track. To encourage each other. And to remind each other when we stray, when things get difficult, that the Lord's forgiveness, that Jesus' love and forgiveness is still for us. But notice this, just as Paul humbles himself, so does he exalt all the others. You know, this, I, I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but this is such a great Baptist passage right here. Because Paul shows us how the Christian life is supposed to work. He writes this letter to, and I quote, all the saints and Christ Jesus in Philippi. Now, he's not talking about our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, how they think of saints as only the people that live the most pious lives. That is a tradition that's grown out, I think, not quite fully understanding what Paul means by saints. When Paul means saint, when he writes saint here, he's talking about just your average churchgoer. If Paul can look at the church in Corinth who's struggling with Adultery, 
all sorts. I'm, there's children in the room. I'm not going to even talk about all the things they're struggling with. If he can write to that church and call them saints, it's clear that their sainthood has nothing to do with their personal piety and everything to do with what God is doing in them. And so he writes to the saints of Philippi. Oh, and also the pastors and deacons too. <laughs> See, that's the way we do it. Well, we want to write to the, the leadership of the church. Paul writes to everybody. He's not writing to bishops, to popes, to presidents, to prime ministers. He writes to all of us. Ordinary Christians. It's to them and to us who are His partners in the Gospel. In other words, Paul wants to recognize not just those leading, but those being led. The entire congregation. See, on a day like today, when we look back, when we look at these pictures, and when we go and share stories, when we think back on God's kindness and faithfulness to our congregation, it should not lead us to lift up any particular person or office or service, but instead, it should help us to see that the Lord has knit all of us together to serve one another and to partner with Him and each other in sharing the Gospel with all. This is a church not because of me or the former pastor or the deacons or the music team. This is a church because all of us are saints together on the same level before the foot of the cross. We know all too well how churches in America have divided in these last ten years or so. We used to just fight over worship preferences. Boy, I wish we could go back to those days when we fought over, well, I don't want to sing a praise song. I want to sing an old Southern Gospel hymn. I wish we went back to the days when we were fighting over carpet color, but now we love to fight over politics. That's the famous thing. Churches these days divide over who we vote for. How silly, folks. This whole letter tells us that Jesus Christ is the King. Who cares who's in the White House ultimately if that's true? Now, we may not like this person or disagree with this or that, but if we lose sight of love and unity and partnership in the Gospel because of what's going on in the AJC, we have lost sight of Jesus Himself. Churches in this land have divided over every kind of thing. Every unimportant thing in the world. And that signals to me, more than anything, that we have a tragic memory loss of what God has called us to do as Christians. We've suffered because of how we put ourselves before we put our brothers and sisters in Christ. The division we see, the animosity, it's not because we're loving each other too well. It's because we're loving ourselves too much. That's for all of us. I'm preaching myself here this morning too, folks. 
But Paul tells us in Romans this. Love one another deeply. Deeply. Not on the surface. Deeply. As brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Don't wait for them to get their act together to love them. Take the lead in honoring them. He says later in this book, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Oh, it's getting quiet in here, folks. I get it. I'm no good at this either. But let's look at this head on and address it together. Peter tells us in his letter, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins, including faulty political opinions. <laughs> right? Can the love of Jesus cover our bad politics? I sure hope so. In fact, I know so. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Oh, I'm done for. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. John the Apostle summarizes in his letter, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But let's just get it straight from the Lord's mouth. Jesus Himself says in the Gospels, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another, but this, by this, everyone will know that you are My disciples. Not by your preaching, not by your theology of baptism or the Lord's Supper. Not by the kind of music you have in your service. Not what you wear to church. By this, they will know that you are My disciple and that you love Me because you love one another. Maranatha, let's give our all this year and every year to loving one another. Because Jesus has first loved us. And so Paul's address should inspire in us both humility, because we see we're not like this naturally speaking, and we want to make life all about ourselves when it's not all about us, but it also inspires in us hope. See, if this was just a letter of the things we needed to do to be loved by God, we'd all walk away despairing. But this is not that kind of a letter. This is a letter remind us of what we can be doing, the joy we can have and serving. But this is a letter of hope because in Christ, no matter what life brings or how often we fail, in Jesus we may have joy, peace, unity, and love. When Paul blesses us by saying grace and peace to you, in verse 2 here, he's not just using a religious platitude. He's really saying, he's inviting us to what life under the kingship of Christ actually looks like. It's a life filled with the never-ending gift of God's 
overflowing and abundant grace. It's peace that is promised to us. Not because of our wisdom, but because of God's forgiveness of us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so from here, he pivots into the meat of the letter. And we'll just touch on this briefly today and get more into it in in following Sundays. But he begins with this, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Now we can take this in a couple ways. And scholars have. First, we could say that Paul is thankful for them every time they come to mind. Every time he remembers them, in other words. Now, I think there's something to this. I think of some of my friends that live in Birmingham, Alabama, where I went to seminary. Some of them working in churches over there, worshiping the Lord. I stayed away this morning. And when I think of them, when I remember them, it brings such joy to my life to remember how they've served me. I remember two fellas that you've met who've preached here before, Brandon Bennett and Brad Brown. When my father called me one September day in 2015 and said, your brother Dan was killed in a motorcycle accident, Brad and Brandon were the first person I wanted to talk to. And I was up at 2 a.m. on Brad's back porch with him and Brandon, and they were just sitting with me. They had work the next day, school the next day. They dropped all of that and came and just sat with me. That's the kind of remembrance I have of people that have shared the Gospel with me borne out its fruit in my life. That's what Paul is feeling for this church while he's sitting alone in prison, serving the Lord, loving His enemies. They bring him food and money and clothes and a friend. Paul gives thanks for that remembrance. But I also think that it can mean that Paul is thankful for how they've remembered Him. See, they sent Him supplies when He needed it. They sent Him Epaphroditus when He was lonely and cut off from His people. And so, I think too, He's thankful that when He feels like no one remembers Him, the Philippians do. Some of our people this morning are in hospitals, sick themselves, and some of our people are in hospitals with a loved one who's about to die. And what they need more than anything is our remembrance of them. What a testament that is. See, the world only wants to celebrate when you're rich and powerful and successful and beautiful, but as soon as you're sick and dying and downcast, Take that away from my sight. Christians are people that look hard into the face of suffering and sit with one another because Jesus suffered for us. And we go and suffer with one another. And it should drive us. This remembrance, verse 4, should drive us to prayer. Talking to God about our hopes for one another. That that we'll be blessed. That others will be blessed by how we have been blessed. 
It's a prayer we return to often because it's woven into the very fabric of our life, these people. They're woven into the very sinews of our heart. And so Paul also gives thanks because they have partnered with Him in the Gospel from the first day until this last one. Maranatha, this is why I'm thankful for you. You have been my partner in the Gospel since the day I was born. Until this very moment. You've been preachers of the Gospel to me. All of you who think you can't preach, you've been preachers because you've been doers of the Word. I'm very convinced as well as my family that I wouldn't be physically alive today if it had not been for your prayers for a little boy who couldn't breathe in the NICU. And I would not be spiritually alive in Christ today if it weren't for your witness and joy in Jesus to a little boy coloring his Batman coloring book down here on the second row. And so as your preacher and your pastor, I echo the Apostle Paul before me. I thank God for you always. You have been ministers of the good news to me when you didn't know you were. And I know that's how you feel about one another. Through thick and thin, through sorrow and joy, through birth and death, through success and defeat, you have been faithful to one another because Jesus Christ was faithful to you first. This is bar none one of the singular joys of my life. Being partners in the Gospel with you. Not just in word, but in deed. And while we've all gotten a little older, a little grayer, Elise is constantly pointing out to me the little white hairs that are springing up on my head. Keeping me humble. I'm so thankful for her. We've all gotten a little older, a little grayer, a little slower, a little weaker. And while we've seen people come and go, and we've been in hospitals and rehabs, while we suffered depression and anxiety, while we've lost jobs and resources, I, like Paul in verse 6, can say with full certainty and confidence, I am sure of this. I'm sure of it. That He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. It's my favorite one. Friends, the salvation that God began in you on Calvary's Hill 2,000 years ago, the baptism you were sealed into by the Spirit's power, the work that He is doing in you by being a member of this congregation, He will bring you across the finish line into the day and presence of Jesus. If He started it, you better be sure He'll finish it. No matter what heartache you may carry inside of you, what disappointment, what shame, what guilt, what hurt, the God who began a good work in the church of Philippi and the church of Maranatha will bring it in joyful, peaceful, united fruition until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for partnering with us and us with each other for the sake of the Gospel. 
Help us to live unto Christ alone and all we do with humility and ourselves, unity with one another, and joy in You. And we ask You all of this, our great God of grace and peace, and the name of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.